I'm Peter Mudlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. And if this is your first time hearing our show, I've got great news for you. It's a really simple idea that we've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are or taught us something beyond the curriculum. And the teachers we have on this podcast, whether teacher, coach, or professor, are nominated by the folks who listen. So we want you to be a part of our show. Tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week, we're bringing you two conversations about a really important issue, early childhood services. So we are talking with Gretchen Sprinkle and then with Cecily Fleming from Birth to Five, Illinois. It's a state-run early childhood initiative, and they just released 39 regional needs assessments that spell out how dire the situation is in every area of the state, along with some recommendations on how to improve things. Gretchen is with the DeKalb County region of Birth to Five, and Cicely is the state director. You know, for a long time, in nearly every part of Illinois, there has been a chasm between what early childhood services are available and what families need. We're talking about everything from preschool to daycare and beyond, and it's especially hard for families of kids with disabilities. And it's an issue I feel like doesn't get nearly enough attention and one I've tried to focus on quite a bit this year. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Birth to Five's Gretchen Sprinkle. First off, when we talk about early childhood education, early childhood services, we're talking about a range of different things. Can we quickly just run through the list of what we're talking about when we're talking about early childhood? Sure. So early childhood, like you said, encompasses a lot. So it's uh, your child care centers. It's family, friend, and neighbor care, where um, a family member or friends might watch your child in their home or a home-based child care provider. It's preschool, it's early intervention, it's um, any service geared towards helping young children develop. Perfect. And then a lot of times when we talk about this issue, we talk about the idea of slots. And it's complicated, and, and we'll get into that more, but Again, can we just define, like, what are we talking about when we're talking about, uh, like, you know, slots that are open or slot gaps? So you kind of think of slots two ways. Um, most people are probably familiar with the fact that the Department of Child and Family Services license child care providers um, to take care of children. Um, sometimes when we talk about slots, we are talking about how many um, children a child care provider is licensed to um, be caring for at any given time. Um, so, you know, you can't have 12 infants in a room with one adult, that's just not safe. Sometimes when we're talking about slats, we're also talking about more specifically, how many children could actually be served by a given provider. Mm -hmm. Um, many providers choose to have even lower ratios than what DCFS allows to ensure higher quality interactions. Right. Just when we're talking about any age of education, low, smaller class sizes usually end up being better. That's what research says. Yeah. It's the higher quality interaction that you can get more one-on-one -on -one attention. And then the report talks about slots also in terms of the the total amount versus 
the number of kids aged six and under in DeKalb County and then what that gap is between what's available and how many kids there are that age that could you know, need those services. Like you said, there are some families that might use a neighbor or might use a family member. They don't necessarily all, you know, use these like a licensed childcare center. But the report talks a bit about the kind of slots also in terms of gaps. And can we talk about what that kind of looks like in DeKalb County? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're spot on with what we mean by slot gap. Um, we know that not every family with a child under the age of six is going to choose any sort of child care provider. But when we're looking at how many kids we have under the age of six, which in DeKalb County is about 7,600. And then the fact that we can only serve as a county 10 to 20% of those kids, depending on which um, city or town you're in, we're talking about that, you know, 80 to 90% of kids that even if they wanted a spot, even if their families had a way to pay for it, the service is not there for them. And so, again, I know there's a ton of different factors that play into that, but if we had to just go through, what are the biggest reasons that those gaps exist? Like, how did we get to this point where 80 to 90% we can't serve? Yeah, that's a lot of what we dug into with our family and action councils and our focus groups. For families, it's the affordability and just the general availability as far as why they are unable to access services. And from the childcare provider end, those slots aren't there for a couple of reasons. Um, the biggest of which being the lack of qualified staff. Um, there just aren't enough qualified adults willing to um, work in childcare facilities. And from what I understand, pay is often very low for workers in you know these childcare settings. And so, you know, mm -hmm. to me, it also kind of reads as kind of a, a vicious cycle of right where low pay leads to burnout, which leads to people leaving the field, which leads to less availability for families with young kids. Is that something that is borne out with the report and what you hear from families? That's what we hear from families and providers alike. Families are so aware of the stressors that their childcare providers are experiencing. Um, last I checked, the national um, median annual salary for an early childhood educator was $29,000 a year. Um, and when you're looking at these centers that want to provide really high quality, so they prefer a, an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, it's not hard to put those pieces together for why there might not be the staff there. Right. Even though I think that, you know, I don't know what exactly the research says, but you'd think that people deem these positions as very important, right? They're looking after children, young children, right? So like there are these very important positions that are not rewarded financially or, you know, that don't have the kind of pay and uh, economic prestige associated with how we think of the importance of those jobs. 
Yeah, um, I like to refer to those early educators as brain builders because 90% of the brain develops before kindergarten, right? All of those synapses are forming. And um, unfortunately, sometimes there's a perception that those early educators are babysitters, that they're just supervising, just providing um, kind of those biological needs that children have, which they do and is so, so important. So families can um, feel that their kids are safe, especially when they go to work. But there is so much more that they do and um, helping children develop. I think we arbitrarily separate those early educators out from our public school teachers, which that is that's a whole other can of worms. Um, but you see that in the pay disparity as well, um, which we've heard time and again from child care providers. So there's that. And then there's also just the question of affordability in general mm-hmm. for families. I know that there's some quotes that the report has from families and from caregivers that talk about um, one of those caregivers said, it's literally my whole paycheck goes to daycare. Like I bring nothing home. Yeah, absolutely. We heard something similar in every single one of our focus groups or, or council meetings, um, literally every single one. And parents and caregivers talk about having to make a decision about whether or not they're going to work just to pay for that child care, or if they're then going to stay home and forego um, working out of the home so they can care for their children, which then we start talking about how do we ensure that those parents and caregivers are the very best first teachers for their children? Um, What resources do we provide them so they feel their child isn't missing anything from that more formal experience. Right. And to go back to this topic of, of, to go back to slots really quick, Mm -hmm. I think it is also very important to note that like, again, not all slots are even created equal. Like, you know, there are some daycare and pre-K slots, right, that are half day and might not Mm -hmm. meet the you know, work schedule of a parent or a caregiver, and those parents might have to juggle multiple different daycares. There might be a slot available, but it might be a long drive away, or they might not have transportation, or they might have a child with disabilities, which makes things even more complicated. And again, I know the report quotes, again, directly from some of these caregivers talking about how I've got to get to work at 530, and there's just no center that works with those hours. So even if, you know, you have quote unquote a slot, it doesn't always necessarily meet that need because, you know, families, caregivers have so many varied needs and schedules and work and all that stuff. Right. Uh, Our second shift and third shift workers have very few, if any, options available to them we heard from one of our family council members that they had a relative driving out from Chicago to watch her children so she could work her second shift job, um, which was ended up not being sustainable for anyone involved. Or we think about really excellent programs like preschool for all, but that's a two and a half to three hour program. And it doesn't, it provides the education need. It doesn't provide the care need for 
caregivers who want to or have to work. Yeah. And I think the, the report also talks about how, and I think you mentioned this too, that availability and accessibility to these programs is also different depending on where you're at in DeKalb County, depending on what town, even what part of a town you live in. I know specifically it highlights the Annie Glidden North neighborhood in DeKalb, talking about how it's, I think, the only section of the region that has a majority black population, and that in that area there are approximately 40 of those licensed full-day child care slots, 40 of them for over 700 kids. So again, depending on even where you're at in the region, the availability and accessibility to those programs can be very, very different. Yeah, uh, more, more locally to that any uh, Glidden North neighborhood, they're now referring to it as Uptown. So I'm gonna use Uptown. They, uh, there is one walkable um, childcare um, like standalone childcare facility um, from Uptown. And even that is a long walk. That's NIU's Child Development and Family Center. Along the bus line, there's also the Hillcrest Drive Kinder Care. Um, and otherwise you have to hope that you can find a home provider in that area. And even if you can physically access it, now we start talking about affordability, hours of care, um, and even language barriers. Mm. We we spoke to a focus group of native Spanish speakers who felt uncomfortable using services when their children's teachers only spoke English. And maybe there was one staff member in the whole center that spoke Spanish. You know, they don't want to um, leave their children when they aren't able to communicate easily about their child's day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, this this whole report is coming out of, you know, Birth to Five, which is, you know, an organization that, that brings together these different community groups and caregivers and care providers. And I know that in DeKalb County that there's kind of been a collaboration for quite some time mm -hmm. within the early child care setting. And, you know, there's some places that don't have that kind of collaboration or didn't until a couple of years ago with Birth to Five. So is it, I, I guess the question is really that like, you know, so we've had this collaboration for a long time, but yet these issues persist nonetheless because of issues of resources. I know the state is devoting a lot more resources, saying they're gonna devote a lot more resources to early childhood. I think the governor said that he wants to make Illinois the best state in the country for early childcare. How do we feel about those investments that we've seen announced over the past couple of years? Just like how impactful do you think those could be? Are those a big deal or are those not as big of a deal as people might think? I think they're a very big deal. Um, you, you spoke a little bit about the um, DeKalb County Collaborative for Young Children. We have uh, an MOU with them and they look kind of broadly about all sorts of um, early childhood and early education. Um, issues. Birth to Five Illinois has the staff time and the resources to really uh, drill down into this um, child care um, idea. So, so we work very closely with them, and you're right, that doesn't exist uh, across the state, which is why the state um, wanted Birth to Five Illinois to exist and asked 
specifically for this information. They want to know what each region needs, and they have uh, told us that they are using these regional needs assessments to help determine how to fund and where to fund. So I am I'm very hopeful that this investment in um, early childhood education and care will make some real changes um, for families in Illinois and specifically DeKalb County. Yeah. And I want to get into the recommendations that the report makes at the mm-hmm. end. But one last thing about you know state funding and funding. It also talks about how funding and state funding has been siloed across multiple different agencies. You know, what issues does that create? Like, why is that a problem? It really creates a headache for the providers and the families that need that funding. Um, we talk about providers braiding together funding from different state organizations and federal um, grants, which is great. It just also takes a lot of time and energy for that. So um, I am really looking and watching as the state of Illinois attempts to um, streamline our funding at the state level, um, which should hopefully free up a lot of staff time and individual time for families looking to access those funds. Right. Hopefully make things less complicated for both the care providers and the families involved. I've heard from families that are care providers, so people that work within early child care and then have kids, and it's incredibly complicated for them to access the resources, and it's their job to know how to do that. So they can imagine, you know, like how difficult that is for people that don't have, don't come in with an understanding of how to maneuver these different agencies and systems. Yeah, well, and that's what I think has gone unheard for a long time. There are so many people in between the end user and the person or entity providing the funds that that um, feedback doesn't always make it to who needs to hear it. And, and we're hoping to kind of break down some of those barriers with this regional needs assessment. Yeah. And then, yeah, what are some of the big recommendations the report has to try to, you know, meet the needs of the region and improve things? Right. So they're, they're big They're big recommendations. And in the full report, it does break down between a state level and then the regional local level of what we can do. But the biggest one is that families want there to be more affordable, high quality um, slots for children. And our families defined high quality as uh, low ratio, meaningful interactions where they feel that their children are safe. Um, For children three and under, there are, or rather, I'm sorry, under the age of three, there are no publicly funded care spots in DeKalb County. There are home visiting spots, which are great for parent and family education. But if you have a two-year-old and you qualify for um, free childcare, you cannot access that in DeKalb County. So we need to work to figure out um, how to make that happen. Another big one was increased accessibility for children with disabilities. 
we heard from families that whether it's a um, developmental delay, whether it's a physical disability or whether it's a cognitive disability, they really struggled to find affordable care that met their child's needs. So we want to focus on making child care um, that does exist more accessible to families, as well as making sure that um, there is a nice fluid transition from early intervention to early special education. And then Gretchen, like, what are what are Cal- DeKalb County's strengths when it comes to you know early childhood services? What are the things that we're already doing really well? Obviously, you want to keep to improving things, but what <laughs> what, what are the strengths that we had coming into this? One of our really big strengths is just the amount of resources available in DeKalb County. We heard time and time again that Basics DeKalb County, um, which is um, which backbone is the Regional Office of Education, is really invaluable to parents. It helps them feel really confident in the interactions they're having with their children and that it's helping them develop. Um, the fact that we have WORSI here offering the Child Care Assistance Program, CCAP, that is, is really important to families, as well as our Preschool for All and Preschool for All expansion programs. Um, particularly that expansion program, it does um, meet some of the care need as well, since it's a longer day. And we had families tell us if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't have been able to go to work. Overall, there's a lot of really great energy around early childhood education in DeKalb County, and our hope here at Birth to Five Illinois is to keep that energy and momentum going as we look to solve some of these big problems. Yeah. And then what's just something about access to you know, early childhood services that you just wish more people knew? I'm sure there's a lot of it that you wish more people knew, but anything that comes to mind? I wish more people knew how much child development happens in those early years and how that feeds into academic success in the future. Um, I I tell people all the time that we get our biggest return on investment in um, early childhood. So if we wanna solve our biggest problems in the community, we have to start with our smallest people. And then if someone wants to learn more about early childhood services, early child care in DeKalb County, where can they go? Well, I actually, I have two answers to this. So if you dial 211 in DeKalb County, uh, you are linked to a live operator that can help you locate services in our community. And that's not just um, early childhood services, but any service you could think of. And the second, is that you can um, visit our Facebook group or send me an email, gsprinkle at birth to five, all spelled out, il.com, and we would be happy to direct you to those services. Well, that was all I had for you. Again, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat about this. Okay, so now we're going to look at this issue from an even more statewide lens. Cicely Fleming is the state director of Birth to Five, and she's going to talk us through the common themes she saw when analyzing all of Illinois' early childhood needs assessments. 
Was there anything that surprised you or you thought was especially notable that you, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of the needs and recommendations that are made are, you know, there's a lot of common themes throughout the state. But was was there anything that as, you know, your team and as everyone is, you know, you're taking in all this information that maybe not surprised you, but just something that you thought was extra notable that you think more people should know about? I think for me and, and, you know, depending on where you are and where you where you live, right, that the state is very diverse geographically. And so but still thinking about those those needs and things across the state. So like one thing that came up was transportation. Right. And so parents talked about they, they just can't get their kids to care, particularly in, you know, more rural areas. You know, I live in Chicago. And so there's rapid transit. Not that that's, you know, always convenient, but um, we're places where that doesn't exist. And so parents talked about. You know, my kid can go to preschool, but it's eight to four or, you know, eight to three. Most people don't get off of work at three. Um, and so what do I do with my kid after that? If there's no care that takes place after three o'clock and I'm at work and I can't even get them. Right. And so um, that that was a huge barrier for parents across the state, even in, in urban areas, the hours of care didn't match up with parents hours of work or the hours that they needed care. And then what do you do with a three-year-old who's out of school at three and there's no kind of aftercare program? And if the parent is, you know, and a lot of times I read these things, the parents are one or two counties over. And even if they get off work at three, they are not arriving, obviously, at daycare at three. And so um, or early learning at three. And so it's just, you know, that that was really interesting to me to see those commonalities across our state from rural areas and urban areas that, Something as simple as how do I get my kid to the classroom is a huge barrier for people. Right. And obviously with all of these needs assessments, one of the things that always comes up in these conversations is this idea of, of you know, slot gaps and having trouble, like having not enough capacity for the need. But what you just brought up is something that I hear so much from parents and, and you know, those care providers where it's like, even if you are, the person that's lucky enough to make it through the wait list and able to find a slot, it's hard for that also to line up with your needs, right? Because it could be a transportation issue or it could not line up with your work hours or, you know, even that could be a language barrier for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, all of those things. And so, um, so that was one thing that across the state we saw um, the transportation need and, and that some care providers, I believe it's like Head Start, um, they can use their dollars to actually, you know, have a van or have a bus and get kids back and forth. Whereas like home care providers who often offer those early morning or late night hours, you know, part of the funding that they get from the state is not to provide transportation, right? They don't get funding for a bus or a bus driver. And so even though they might match up with the hours, they don't have the infrastructure support. Right. I have to imagine that something that came up across the state was the idea of affordability. Oh. And, and you know, I think about it in both ways too, right? Because you have the actual people that, that work in early childhood education that so often aren't paid very much. And, and you know, we're, uh, one of the, I think, recommendations for both the DeKalb and the Winnebago and, and um, Boone County that I talked to was talking about how we need to you know, incentivize more people to get into the field and mm-hmm. need to be able to pay people more because they see such burnout and turnover mm-hmm. in a lot mm-hmm. of these settings. But you need to, you know, increase that 
while not raising prices for parents because right. affordability is such an issue there. Right. I have to imagine that that is something that, despite the diversity of the state, came up over and over. Oh, yeah. And the state has been doing some work, you know, even before the pandemic, some kicked in, but just about workforce, right? How, how do we build capacity? And part of that, as you said, is is salary, right? If you if we are not paying folks what they think is a um, valuable wage for a position, you know, most people are not necessarily going to go into it. Obviously, many do, but it's not going to attract what you need, especially for longevity. Then obviously with COVID and folks dropping out of the, the workforce in that way. And so the state has done a great job. I mean, they do have funds that went as community right away to support the workforce and support providers during the pandemic. And thankfully, with the new Smart Start budget that, you know, a lot of those dollars are still rolling out. And that will support the workforce that's there, ideally, but we still need to do a lot to get more folks into the workforce. Um, and so there are dollars out there for people to go and get, you know, go to community college or go to college and get, you know, education to be um, early education providers. But there's still a gap between the pay for early education providers and like elementary school providers. So trying to bridge that gap. Right. And so people can stay at centers or preschools or Head Starts or home care providers and not go over to the districts where they make more money, right? And so that's still a gap. And then, yes, the, the point about parent affordability is just everywhere, right, parents? And the state, again, they've, we've made huge strides in increasing the um, or, de- or decreasing the income in which people can be eligible for um, subsidized care. And so you can be, I think it's not 225% of the federal poverty guidelines. If you're well, family, is it? I think it's 200 200- in the report, I kept seeing 200% and lower, but I don't know if that's different. Well, and you know what? So they changed the number. So during COVID, they increased it. It might be back to 200 now. It was at 225 at some point. But anyhow, but, you know, that so that that is a huge help. But a lot of parents, and you might you might have seen in some of the reports that, you know, if I, if I get a raise of a dollar an hour, I'm out, right? Yeah. And so they're balancing, do I take the raise, which is good for my family and good for me as professional, or do I, you know, not take the pay increase so that I can continue to get a subsidized care? And so, again, our state has, has tried to meet the need, um, but parents are just, and as you know, not only, you know, care for kids, but everything else is rising, right? And so parents are constantly trying to balance that. Do I do I pay, you know, kind of more money out of pocket for my kids' care and then have maybe more money to take home? Or is it kind of all a wash if I get more money to bring home, but I'm paying more money out of pocket for my for my kids' care. And so there's been a lot of conversation about is there kind of um, a way in which we slowly help parents kind of as so that they can, you know, bring home more dollars to their job, but they don't lose all of their subsidized care. So maybe they're rolling off slowly. So it's a little gentler for the families to take and they don't have to balance the, you know, other financial gains that they would have or even, you know, um, you know, promotions, right? And so being able to kind of climb whatever social ladder you're looking for because you're constantly thinking about how to pay for your kids to have care. Yeah, no, it was something that I was actually almost surprised by how frequently I heard that specific story of parents being right on that borderline. Mm -hmm. They're like, do I want to take this promotion? Do I want to take this other job? And that seems like something to me, and it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily my job to, you know, make like policy recommendation or anything like that, but it seems like one of those things where it's like if you qualify and you make a dollar more and that kicks you out, it feels like there should be a way to be grandfathered in or something to that effect, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, and I think it's something the state is aware of, but, you know, yeah. we, we have to figure out how to make it work. And then you think about people, you know, I think it was actually in DeKalb, or no, it wasn't DeKalb, it was DuPage. Mm-hmm. Where they said as a region, you know, if you look at their numbers overall, it looks like kind of a wealthy re- an area, 
but yeah. there are pockets of poverty, as we know, everywhere, or people who make less than other people. And so, see, how do we factor in cost of living, right? Where someplace where I live, cost of living is pretty high, but, you know, that same threshold is the same for me as opposed to someone who lives somewhere um, where the cost of living is not so high. And so do we, can we factor that in? Because, you know, my cost of rent is much higher. And so therefore I might have less money to pay towards quality care. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, you know, one of the other things that I kept hearing in, again, and I've only read these assessments for a couple of our regions here in Northern Illinois. And the one that stuck out to me as like the most obvious one was talking again about pay for the people that are working in those childcare settings is uh, people being like, yeah, in the childcare settings and centers where we're able to pay a higher wage, you know, like you said, pay a, a wage and, and offer those resources that is similar to what the school district is. Uh, we don't see nearly as much, you know, turnover and burnout in those settings. And I was like, yeah, you, you don't say that. That totally checks out. Yeah, and it's pay, it's, you know, it's benefits, right? Benefits, yeah. School district, and then there's, you know, if you're, if you're going to stay long enough, you know, there's pension fund, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of perks, um, and we don't want to penalize providers who, you know, or teachers who do not want to go into the school district who love, you know, I talk a lot about family um, provision, family care, because they are really the ones during the pandemic who, who, who stayed open if they could, right, and kept a lot of the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and work those non-traditional hours a lot of times, right? Kids can go there from six in the morning, so usually six or seven or eight o'clock at night. Um, but they are often or historically have been the ones who have had to, you know, sacrifice paying themselves so they can pay parents. Or not pay parents, pay the teachers, right? So if I'm the yeah. home care provider and own the home, I might go without pay or without the pay that I need so that I can make sure I pay my staff, right? Make repairs to my house and make sure the heat is working and you know, all of those kind of things that I have to do just to maintain my home. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the pandemic. I'm curious, like, how do you, how much are we seeing the lingering effects of the pandemic, you know, bore out in these needs assessments? Oh, I mean, it's, there, there is a ton. I mean, even the yeah. commission and the funding commission report where our, where our work kind of was birthed started, you know, right before the pandemic and then ran through the pandemic. Right. And so, um, I think we, we people who weren't, and, and myself included, because I'm not necessarily an early childhood education professional, but, um, you know, they lost so many staff and so many didn't come back, right? If you think about the kind of the demographic overall of the child care workforce, it is women, mostly older women, a lot of women who are underpaid and, you know, all those kind of things, right? And so those are the ones who are also at the biggest health risk. And so a lot of them, you know, for their own personal reasons, you know, left the field and then did not return. I mean, if I think about even people working in corporate America, a lot of them are only back in their office a couple of days a week, right? Except we expect these childcare providers to be back open 24 hours or, you know, not 24 hours, but, you know, every day. Um, Maybe so I think 24 that, hours would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that is huge. And then again, yeah. because we were able to, through, you know, federal stimulus dollars, get a lot of money out very quickly to support care providers, um, then that's hard then for the government entity to say, okay, well, pandemic's over. We're going to, you know, all the money kind of, all the extras are, are gone, right? And so I think the state of Illinois has tried to keep some of those going because we know that they're needed, but, you know, the stimulus dollars are going to run out. And so we need to kind of figure out a way to build it into our own system. But, and then I think you have a lot of kids who left the system yeah. or didn't even join the system because parents were fearful, rightfully so, about their health. And so, and then a lot of kids who were in the 10 learning spaces, 
you know, there's learning loss, there's mental health, you know, all of the things that we all as adults have, you know, worked through and still working through, you know, our little people are also working through. Um, and displacement of families who had to move during the pandemic because of whatever reasons. And so children lost that, you know, access to care or the consistency of care. And so what that does to a kid. So I think you're seeing it a lot now. I know I saw a study not too long ago just about kids going into um, like kindergarten now who were, you know, in learning, early learning during the yeah. pandemic and kind of what the behaviors we're seeing there and the mental health challenges some of them are having. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like if you, if you were born in, 20 yeah if you were born in 2020 those kids are you know three and almost four years old at some point so. yeah and some have never had any early learning which again for us we don't take a stance on I mean, we think early learning is great but we don't take a stance on parents who decide not to engage we we just want every family who would like to engage to have quality care and affordable care um but those kids who did not engage because of family circumstances you know that have to do with the pandemic those are different experiences than just kids like my own who stayed on with me for the first couple of years of their life because that was the choice we made as a family. So we've got all these big needs assessments that get published and they're out there and I'm sure they're getting community feedback and, and hearing from all kinds of stakeholders and the states looking at it. Like what's what comes next? So for us, um, we are going to do a couple of things this year. And so obviously except the needs assessments are out there. We're going out now to collect community feedback because we realize as, as hard as our staff work, we didn't talk to everybody. And so we want to go back and make sure that these reports, um, as to the best of our ability, really reflect what the community sees. And, you know, right, because our job was really just to bring folks together and scribe. It should not be our thoughts on these papers. And so going back to collect more feedback and so we'll produce um, in a couple months in addendum, that'll be a public document, just a couple of pages to go onto this to let you know or let the community know if we've you know, learned anything new. Um, and then the council, the councils will come back online with some new people. Um, and their second scope of work will be to make an action plan. And so you see those needs and recommendations. Their goal will be to look at what can be done locally because we know, you know, we our goal is not to write something and kind of wait for the state to come in with, you know, the magic marker and change everything. But there's some things that can be pushed for locally with those municipal dollars or business leader dollars or, you know, those COVID funds. And so what can be maybe done, at, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit idea um, locally and, and gathering those people together and trying to start those conversations and, and seeing what they can do. Um and so that will start to happen. And then early next year, they will start kind of a needs assessment part two, much, much smaller. Um, and it will really be focused on just mental health because we saw throughout the state that that was a huge need, particularly for the, the young learners. And so each region will look into mental health, what's available, what's still needed. Um, you know, I was not so much surprised, but throughout the state, you know, we knew that there were going to be needs for mental health for young people. but the providers talked a lot about mental health and challenges they were having, right? And so trying to assess and kind of going into that, like, what can we do to help move um, or meet the needs uh, for mental health? And that's also, you know, parents talked a lot about their mental health needs, right? And so trying to support their kids, trying to get their kids into care, but then also their families own mental health challenges. So we're going to go into that next year. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the like kind of uh, local parts of this or action plans to figure out where funding can come from, because that was really one of the last questions I had for you is that I know that Smart Start is, is such a big investment, but there's like there's so many different issues to cover. And it, cause we've got the big, you know, recommendations or needs that we hear is everything from 
the slots, the infrastructure, to affordability for parents, to, you know, pay and benefits for the childcare workers. Like, that's a lot to encompass in just this one state funding uh, initiative. Is that kind of the main place where a lot of that support is going to come from is Smart Start? And then, like you said, it seems like there is some, you know, work that's being done on, on how to maybe use other funds to try to solve some of these problems, too. Yeah, I mean, I just sent over, I mean, obviously the state has looked at these. When I say the state, I usually am talking about DHS because I engage with them just a little more than I do ISB, but I just sent over to DHS and ISB kind of very high level. This is, these are the things that came out in the reports in terms of needs from the state, right? And so, um, again, I don't think anything that they, they didn't know, but hopefully we can pinpoint and maybe even put a a name, so to speak, um, or face with the issue. Um, so I just sent that over to them. I know DHS is doing a lot of the implementation for Smart Start and figuring out how to do it and where does it go. And, you know, some things will be infrastructure build out. Other things will be, you know, service delivery. And so they have said that they want to look at these and understand what the needs are and, and dig deeper. And so they can kind of allocate dollars appropriately. You know, you and I know we live in a state that it may not be as no state is very fast. And so we'll see how fast those dollars do move. But, yes, definitely talking to our team about you know, getting these reports and getting the information in front of your state elected officials, your local elected officials, like state state elected officials usually have dollars they can access for their communities. Um, You know, local elected officials have tax dollars and other things that they can allocate. And so working with them, working with the business community, like there are some needs, are there ways in which you can help or you can invest or you can, you know, help have more conversations about the needs, right? Because it, it won't all happen from smart start because there's too many kids and too many needs. And to your point, a lot of infrastructure and salary things need to happen because you can't just open slots and you don't have buildings or you can't open slots and you don't have teachers. Um, so a lot of that stuff needs to happen and everything takes time. And meanwhile, the kids need care, right? And so um, our goal is to be doing both. And so part of my, you know, my, my main job is to communicate what we understand from the state and make sure we can match them up accordingly. And then our regional team's job is to go back out in community and make sure that we're tapping the shoulders of folks who need to be in on these conversations and who might have access to whatever supports um, are needed in the community to move these forward. And so like in Will County, they're starting to do that with cannabis funds. And so their county board is having discussions about using cannabis funds to put directly into early learning. I think they're looking at workforce, but also some supports for home care providers. And so, you know, those are big wins for that community. If we can see those kind of things, you know, across the state and, you know, maybe meet Smart Start halfway, we can make some big wins for the babies. I appreciate you taking the time. Yes, thank you so much. That was Cicely Fleming. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get our great guests. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. If you like what we do, it really is the best way to make sure we can get even more perspectives on the show. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at WNIJ.org. Big thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear in each and every episode of our show. Thank you to Spencer Tritt for making our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we will be back with a brand new Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.